new sermon series uh, today that will take us through the spring on the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world. Uh, we were thinking about entitling the series The Goat Sermon, the greatest of all time. And that's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Even among non-religious people, this is considered one of the greatest pieces of literature. And yet, even though it is probably the best-known block of Jesus' teachings with famous sayings like, you are the light of the world, and uh, turn the other cheek, and love your enemies, and the so-called golden rule, you know, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This sermon is very often misunderstood and much less actually obeyed. And that's why it's important for us. Now, on the one extreme, you have those that see the sermon as this beautiful ethical teaching, which it is, but that anyone and everyone can follow. And then on the other side, uh, you have those who see this as an absolutely impossible standard that no one could ever possibly fulfill. Well, let me make it clear right from the top that this Sermon on the Mount is surely meant to be lived out. It can be lived out. It must be lived out, but not just by anyone. Scripture makes clear that only those who have become new persons in Jesus Christ. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 puts it, those who are new creations in Christ, only those can live out the sermon by God's grace, by his power. But this has us to see that one crucial purpose of this entire sermon is this. It's meant to clearly distinguish the stark contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian for all to see. And that also includes distinguishing all genuine Christians from all so-called believers out there. You see, there are many mistaken, there are many counterfeit believers in Jesus. So how can you tell who's a genuine Christian from who's a false believer? Well, this is what this sermon is all about. So as we go through this, the inevitable question that you should be asking yourself is, am I a person that genuinely belongs to the kingdom of heaven that's talked about? Am I genuinely a citizen of the kingdom of God or am I still on the outside looking in? Now, moreover, all of us are in need of a full spiritual health checkup. You know, I'm in need of a physical health checkup. I don't remember the last time I actually went to a, a doctor and got a, a full comprehensive physical. Okay, my wife keeps nagging me about it. All right. Well, we are in need of a full spiritual health checkup, and that's what this sermon provides. As we go through this series, it's going to be a full, comprehensive, penetrating examination for you. As Jesus 
addresses pretty much every major area of your life through these chapters. For instance, your emotional health and well-being. More specifically, the issue of anger in your life. How are you in your struggle with your anger, your bitterness, your frustration? Moreover, addresses our lives of purity in every way, spiritual, emotional, physical, sexual purity. How about the integrity of your words and the commitments that you make in your life? How about your attitude towards people in your life, especially the hard to love, even more so your enemies who just don't like you? How are you towards those people? What are the practices that mark your life in devotion to God? What about your relationship with your money, your view towards your money, how you spend your money? How about issues of anxiety in your life, how you approach your uncertain future? You see, all these things and more is what this sermon covers. It's going to provide a full spiritual health checkup. So if you have ears to hear, hearts to receive, and wills to obey what Jesus teaches here, it can lead you, it will lead you to a fuller spiritual and emotional health that makes your lives so distinctly attractive in this world. For God's sake. Now, our passage this morning serves as both an introduction and really an essential summary of the entire sermon, this section that's called the Beatitudes. Some of you may have heard this term, the Beatitudes. Now, while it is a rich, very worthy study to dig deep into each of these Beatitudes, what I want to do this morning is really show us how these Beatitudes is an overall portrait that helps us to see three things about the kingdom of God, about this kingdom of heaven that's mentioned over and over again in this passage. And what are those three things that we'll see about God's kingdom? Well, first, that it's an upside-down kingdom. Secondly, it's an inside-out kingdom. And thirdly, it's a forward back kingdom. Okay, so that's my outline this morning. Hopefully that'll help you remember, I'll help you organize this passage. Upside down kingdom, inside out kingdom, and lastly forward back kingdom. Okay, so first upside down kingdom. This list of beatitudes is Jesus's description of the Christian in his or her essential characteristics. Of all the things that Jesus could say, this is what a Christian is, he boils it down to this list. Now, this list is not, um, uh, we'll see later on, um, the hardcore cream of the crop Christian, but this is a list that describes every true kingdom citizen. Now, when you start to study this list, I think for all of us, our attention is naturally drawn to what those characteristics are. But I don't want you to look past the word 
that repeatedly begins every declaration here. And what is that word? Blessed. Blessed. Now, this is a word that can also be translated truly happy or a person that's truly favored. So this is describing the person that's meant to be congratulated. This is the type of person that's to be envied because he or she is truly happy. Now I want to pause here and have you think who or what type of person do you immediately think of when you hear that word blessed? So when you think about man, that person is blessed. What immediately comes to mind? I'm actually going to give you just a quick moment. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and just share with them what type of person, who they are, what they have comes to mind when you think of, man, that person is blessed. That's the person to be envied. Okay, don't be a spiritual smart aleck and start listing the Beatitudes themselves, all right? What immediately instinctively comes to mind? So let's turn to each other real quick and share that. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to call upon anyone, but I'm guessing that the answers that come to mind for you immediately are what the world thinks of immediately of a blessed person, and that's in terms of good health, good genes. I don't mean skinny genes. I mean G-E-N-E-S, enviable wealth possessions, abilities, success, respect, and so on. Now I want you to contrast your image of a blessed person to the person that Jesus describes here. And is it not the complete opposite? Now look here. Blessed, happy are the poor, not rich. In spirit. How about the next one? A direct contradiction. Truly happy are those who mourn. What a stark paradox. The one to be envied is the meek. Not the one who has swag. The meek. And on and on. You see, you see how Jesus comes and completely flips the world script. His kingdom turns our world upside down as he radically redefines who is truly blessed. Now, some of you may know who A.W. Tozer is. He was a pastor from a previous generation. He wrote this classic book, The Pursuit of God, which some of you have read. And in that book, this is an excerpt where he describes this about the Beatitudes. And he says, a fairly accurate description of the human race might be furnished to one unacquainted with it by taking the Beatitudes 
turning them wrong side out and saying, here is your human race. For the exact opposite of the virtues in the Beatitudes are the very qualities which distinguish human life and conduct. In the world of men, we find nothing approaching the virtues of which Jesus spoke in the opening words of the famous Sermon on the Mount. Instead of poverty of spirit, we see the rankest of pride. Instead of mourners, we find pleasure seekers. Instead of meekness, arrogance. Instead of hunger after righteousness, we hear men saying, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Instead of mercy, we find cruelty. Instead of purity of heart, corrupt imaginings. Instead of peacemakers, we find men quarrelsome and resentful. Instead of rejoicing in mistreatment, we find them fighting back with every weapon at their command. Into a world like this, the sound of Jesus' words comes wonderful and strange. A visitation from above. He is the only one who can say blessed with complete authority. For he is the blessed one come from the world above to confer blessedness upon mankind. And so it is wisdom for us to listen. Now, I want you to think about why is it that Jesus, in these Beatitudes, he doesn't just list these qualities. He doesn't just say, you know, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, citizens that belong to my kingdom, they are poor in spirit, mournful, meek, and so on. Why does he put it this way? Blessed are, blessed are. It's because he's trying to get through to a deaf humanity. We are deaf. He's trying to get through to us the answer to the biggest question of our lives, the biggest question that confronts us. And what's that? How do we, where do we find true, ultimate happiness? Now, all of us, whether you're conscious about it or not, are seeking happiness every moment of your life in everything that you do, if you, if, even if you're not so consciously thinking about it. Isn't that what Blaise Pascal, who's a Christian mathematician, theologian, put it? He says, all people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step put to this object of pursuing happiness. This is the motive of every action of every person, even of those who hang themselves. Because depressed people, they think that's what's going to lead them to the end of their pain. That's what drives us in every moment of our lives. So let me ask you, what are you seeking your happiness, your ultimate happiness in that would make you feel that you're a person to be envied, congratulated, successful. Again, it, maybe this is not something that you so consciously think about as you live your life and you do what you feel like doing. But what is it that you believe will make you truly happy? 
I think there's more people in this room that would care to admit that you're not a happy person. You're not a happy person right now. Well, if that's not the case, then what is it that you're not? What is it that you don't have that you think is ruining your happiness? Well, would you let the all-wise voice of Jesus tell you that you are unhappy, perhaps more than you know, because you are seeking your happiness in ways that ultimately is cursed rather than blessed. That you're walking in paths that lead ultimately to misery rather than bliss. That you're pursuing a path that would leave you to be a person to be pitied, not envied. So first and foremost, as we see this list, the Beatitudes, I want you to see it not as just a list of morals. I want you to see it as the pathway to true human flourishing. And let your soul be drawn to it. You know, the tragedy of humanity is our never-ending search for happiness through better technology, more information, more possessions. In America, a less religious and more secularized society and so on. And where has all this human progress left us? You can ask any mental health professional. We're as unhappy as ever. And that's because generation after generation continually ignores Jesus' words. Would you open your ears and hearts to these beatitudes? Yearn to be, yearn to do these things, these values that flip the world upside down. That's Jesus' upside down kingdom. Let's look next that this points to Jesus' inside out kingdom. Now let's actually study this profile of the kingdom citizen. Now, let me make a few things clear here at the top about this list that people have been confused about. All these characteristics are one complete profile, all come together, and they mark every true Christian, as I said before. This is not the description of the qualifications of an elder or a deacon or a deaconess. This is not the list that describes the hardcore cream of the crop Christians. This describes every true kingdom citizen. And again, this is not a list that says, you know, some are poor in spirit and then others are mournful and then still others are meek. No, they all hold and fit together, again, as one complete profile. Now, nobody is perfect in all these ways. That's not what Jesus is getting at. But if you're truly a citizen of God's kingdom, all these things are genuinely present and an ever-progressing reality in your life. And so this is a mirror for you to examine yourself. Now what we see as we take a bird's eye view of this complete profile 
is a righteousness that far exceeds religiousness. Religiousness is an externally oriented morality focused on outward conformity to rules and religious rituals and is not necessarily consistent with what's going on inside a person, in a person's heart. This is the righteousness that much of the world, in a way, has. This was the righteousness of the Pharisees whom Jesus is confronting with these Beatitudes and this entire sermon. In contrast, in stark contrast, the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven is from the inside out. It begins with true, inward, spiritual realities in the heart and mind that then sprout outward into your words, your hands, your feet, your actions, your behavior. You see, there is nothing like Jesus' inside-out kingdom that produces this inside-out righteousness. You know, every other religion, every other system of ethics, every other truth in the world, you know what kind of righteousness it produces? It produces a righteousness that leads to a prideful, self-righteous, even repulsive person. In contrast, Jesus' kingdom produces a radiant, attractive, not repulsive, attractive righteousness. Jesus' kingdom produces a person that is both profoundly holy and yet not holier art thou. It produces a person who is profoundly holy and profoundly humble at the same time. No other religion, no other truth, no other ethics produces such a person. Simultaneously holy and humble. Now, how is this the case? Well, the Beatitudes and the ordering them leads us to see how such a beautiful radiant, attractive righteousness is produced. So what I'm going to do in this section is I'm just going to look at the first four Beatitudes in a bit of detail because that's what gives the foundation. That's what describes, all of them do, but the first four mainly describe this inward spiritual reality that takes root, that then leads to a life, a behavior of righteousness. Okay, so I'm going to just kind of uh, tease out in detail the first half, and then the second half I'm just going to quickly mention because that's going to get uh, unpacked in greater detail throughout the rest of the sermon. Okay, so you're not going to get shortchanged. All right? So let's just go through the first four we see here that provides this foundation. First, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a reason why this is the first in this list of characteristics. This is where it all begins for someone who's a kingdom citizen. What does this mean, poor in spirit? Jesus is not talking about those who are materially poor. It's not about what you have or have not. He's talking about spiritual poverty, poor in spirit. This is describing those who see, who acknowledge, who feel that they are spiritually 
morally impoverished before God. Even more so, that we are spiritually bankrupt before God. That we have absolutely nothing spiritually morally to our name. If you see this about yourself, if you feel this about yourself, you feel yourself, you see yourself like a crippled beggar, desperate for mercy to be had. This leads you to be humbled to the dust. But you know what? This is not what people are naturally are like. You know, you might not see yourself as rich in spirit, as a spiritually, morally wealthy person. But you know what? None of us naturally feel convicted that you are bankrupt in spirit. I think where most people in the world world lie is what I call, you see yourself as middle class in spirit. You know, you're not the the most righteous person in the world, but you're you're not a beggar. You're not a crippled beggar desperate for mercy. You're not that bad. Yes, you have flaws and things like that, but you're not that bad. See, we're middle class in spirit, but that's not enough. Just to give you an illustration, I remember back to my days in seminary when I was really poor, um, and I mean materially poor, like monetarily poor, and I was struggling to, among many things, like eat well, um, and uh you know, a bunch of um, us pastors um, at Renewal West Philly, we used to live together in this house, and we, were, we shared in this struggle where we would try to do anything and everything to uh, stretch out meals to find the biggest bargains. Like, there's all these uh, Chinese corner stores with bulletproof glass, you know, and we'd buy these cheap $3 chicken wing meals and stretch them out over days. You know, we'd go to fast food places and buy stuff off the dollar menu and so on and so forth. You know, sometimes all I would eat would be, like, boxes of cereal or even worse, like, boxes of Cheez-Its because that was what was cheapest on on the grocery shelf, and that's what I would eat for meals. Well, during those days, I heard about a friend in seminary that actually obtained and used food stamps to get free groceries. And so when I heard about that, I was like, huh, maybe I should go get some groceries for myself. So I looked into it and I saw that I, at that time, easily qualified with what I was getting monthly for food stamps. And so I got some food stamps. I remember going to a grocery, standing in line. And when I got to the front, to the cashier, I couldn't get myself to just hand over those food stamps and get a lot of my groceries that I had for free. Last moment, I just pulled out my credit card and put it in my debt. (laughs) Now, why is it that I couldn't pull the trigger? It's because of my pride. It's because handing over food stamps made me feel so low by myself. I was thinking, man, I I am a Wharton graduate. What am I doing here? What has my life come to? I couldn't bring myself so low to admit that, yes, I qualify for welfare right now. And because I couldn't admit that, I failed to obtain what I could have gotten freely. You see, I had a middle-class mindset. 
I was of a middle-class sensibility. I couldn't acknowledge my poverty and thus obtain what I really needed, really. You see, so many people in the world are of middle-class sensibility, and that's what precisely prevents them from entering into God's kingdom. For the Christian, this is not just the attitude that marked you when you first came to believe. This is an ongoing conviction that you are utterly bankrupt before God. You are utterly desperate for his grace, for his help, for his power. That's what marks you continually. So let me ask you, is that what can be said of your life? Is that what can be said of your view of yourself, that you see yourself as destitute, bankrupt, like a crippled beggar before God, desperate for any mercy to be had? You see, there's no being part of God's kingdom if that's not there. That's the first non-negotiable points to it. And then next, that leads to, verse 4, being one who mourns. Now, this is not talking about like mourning in, in every way because then that would literally describe every person in the world. Every person mourns about something in their life. But this is a spiritual mourning. This is a Holy Spirit wrought, supernaturally produced spiritual mourning. Why? Because you are spiritually impoverished. And so we can be more specific. What is the cause of this spiritual mourning? Well, it's sin. It's your sin that wreaks havoc in your life, that wreaks havoc on others. It's the sin of others that breaks your heart. It's as you see this world around you with spiritual eyes, you see how broken, how painful, how miserable, how unjust it is all because of human rebellion against God. And so your life, your life is marked by this continual fundamental mourning. Now the Bible also describes that Christians are joyful people. It's not that you're just moping only throughout your life, but that this mourning is always present in there. You know, in the book of Isaiah, Jesus is described as the man of what? The man of sorrows. Think about his emotional life. He lived every moment of his life carrying the weight of sorrow, heartbreak. Not because of his own, he never sinned, not because of any of sin of his own, but because of the sin-sick world that he was bombarded with all around him. And that's what made him a sorrowful people all the time, a sorrowful person all the time. Likewise, the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is marked by this mourning. Are you? Then that leads to verse 5. If you're spiritually impoverished and you mourn over sin, it makes you a meek person, humble, gentle, Versus this world that's full of self-importance, 
self-promotion, selfish ambition. You know, this world sees meekness as weakness, right? Nobody wants to be meek. But I want you to realize the Bible describes meekness as strength and power. You know who's described as the meekest person on the face of the earth when he lived? Moses in the book of Numbers. Moses was the most powerful person in the world. He was used by God to perform miracles that the world had never seen. And yet, this powerful person was the meekest man on the face of the earth. What makes a person humble, gentle? It's when they have a brutally honest view of themselves as poor in spirit. And it's when they rest in how God views them and relates to them. You see, it's those who chase after power and respect and authority, those who are arrogant. It's those people in the world who are weak and insecure. And what they're chasing after is driven by fear. But those who are secure in their honest view of themselves and how God views them are meek and meekness is their strength are you marked in your life by meekness and then that all leads to in verse 6 that the kingdom citizen hungers and thirsts after righteousness now, first and foremost, what this is describing is a person who sees themselves as spiritually bankrupt, who mourns over their sinful condition, and that leaves them to be humble, meek. If you're that person, you hunger and thirst for a righteousness that God requires, a righteousness that will save you eternally. But you know what? What's the dilemma? It's a righteousness that you and I don't have. It's a righteousness that we can't attain ourselves. But this is what points to the biggest contrast between Christianity and every other religion in the world. And what's that? It's that the kingdom of God drives us to a righteousness that's not achieved, but righteousness that's first and foremost received. You see, a person who hungers and thirsts after God's perfect righteousness that saves fully acknowledges that we don't have in and of ourselves any ability to be righteous that meets that standard. But you know what that person does? He seeks after and obtains a righteousness that's gifted to us a righteousness that's given freely by grace that meets God's standard by which you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. And whose righteousness is that? It belongs to the person who you see when you step back and look at what these beatitudes ultimately point to. Who is the perfectly poor in spirit mournful, meek, 
hungering after righteousness, merciful, pure, peacemaking, persecuted person. It's Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus who lived this truly, fully blessed life. And what did he receive? He was cursed. This blessed person was cursed on the cross. Why? So that you and I, if you receive his righteousness by faith, will be blessed and would enter into his everlasting kingdom. You see, that's what this verse first and foremost points to, the gospel by which you enter in. And then if you're marked by this person saved by righteousness, by faith, that makes you a person that's not lazy, that's just kind of sitting there coasting by. But as this verse describes, you are a person who's hungry, thirsty, after righteousness in your own life by the grace of God. Now, what type of person are you when you are hungry and thirsty? Many of us get hangry, right? Many of us are starting to feel that now, right? Get to your last point, right? So that we can be done here and get to lunch, right? When you're hangry, you're probably not a pleasant person to be around. Irritable, kind of, you know can't stand people around you until you get your food. Well, you know what a kingdom citizen is marked by? They are hangry. They are upset. They are, in a way, irritable if they are not walking in the ways of God. Are you bothered? Are you torn up inside when your life does not reflect the ways of God? That's what the people of God are marked by. And how particularly so? Well, again, I'll just mention them quickly. That you are a merciful person. Loving not just those who can love you back, but those who precisely can't. Those who are in greatest need. You are a person of mercy. But not just a horizontal person who's after compassion and mercy and justice that liberals can emphasize, but you're also a person who's vertically righteous, pure in heart. You see, the liberals emphasize compassion and mercy and justice at the expense of personal virtues of righteousness and purity. Conservatives emphasize personal virtues of purity and righteousness at the expense of mercy and justice, but the kingdom of God is a righteousness that has both. You're merciful and you're pure. And you're a peacemaking person, bringing people together, healing relationships in your life and among people, right? making peace, not breaking peace, not faking peace, making peace in this world of hostility and hatred. And then lastly, perhaps the ultimate indicator, evidence that you belong to Jesus' kingdom. That you so identify with him that you're willing to endure opposition, even persecution, hatred for representing Christ. 
So that right there, of all the things that Jesus could have mentioned, boils down the essential profile. So let me ask you here, as this is a mirror for you, does your life reflect this? Do you belong to the kingdom of heaven? If you were to write out your resume, your CV, for those of you who are dating online, your dating profile, are these the characteristics that you could list in some way? That's what Jesus says, is those who belong to me in my kingdom. So examine yourself. And lastly, let's turn to see how these Beatitudes show us a forward back kingdom. Forward back kingdom. What's going to empower us to live out these Beatitudes when they go totally against the grain of the values of this world? You know, to actually live out being a poor in spirit versus, versus a proud person. Right, a meek versus a self-important, self-promoting, arrogant person. It's so hard. It goes against the grain. How are you going to be able to do this? Well, notice what's included in each of these Beatitudes at the end of each description. It points to a future reality a future reward, a future status that's true about you, that's coming to you when the kingdom of God is ushered in in full. And if that is what's true of you and you anchor yourself to that reality, that translates back to the present and enables you in the here and now to live in this way. That's what I'm talking about when I say a forward-back kingdom. That's a forward-back dynamic that's happening here. You see, in the end, that's what the people of God are waiting for. In the end, when the kingdom of God comes in full. See, in the end is when all the tables will be flipped upside down. Those who are living as if they are rich in spirit, they're the ones who ultimately will end up in utter poverty separate from God, whereas those who live poor in spirit now will be lavished in the end, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, those who mourn biblically, spiritually now in the right way, they're the ones who will be everlastingly comforted in the end, whereas those who laugh off what the Bible is saddened, heartbroken about in this world now, they will be ultimately saddened in the end. You see, everything will be flips upside down. And if you live, you tether yourself, you anchor yourself to your future reality, your future reward, your future status, that's what's going to empower you to live such a way in the present. Let's take a look at that last beautiful beatitude there, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people revile you, 
hate you, persecute you. And what does it say there? Rejoice and be glad when that happens to you. Don't just endure it, but you can rejoice when that happens to you. You know, um, perhaps you heard this from Pastor Luke um, earlier, but right now um, in China is perhaps the greatest season of persecution that Christians are facing in decades. I mean, there's always been persecution of believers in that country, uh, but right now is perhaps the most intense season of persecution seen in decades. And I don't know if you've come across on social media, or it's been in the New York Times, Washington Post, one church in particular where the pastors of that church, including the lead pastor, the elders of that church, and more than 100 members of that church have been detained and interrogated since December. This is recent. Um, brought in by the authorities. From December, that church has since closed down. I mean, they've been shut out of their meeting place. And so they now have to worship on Sundays in groups and private homes, or some do it outward, out, outside in public parks. Many of these members have been physically, emotionally persecuted for their faith, separated from family members. Now, one thing that has stood out to me so powerfully and all the accounts that I've been reading about these believers as they've been detained, as they've been persecuted for their faith, one thing that's seen in every single one of them is this profound joy, is this profound sense of privilege that this is what they're enduring for Jesus' sake. Just this past week, four families uh, have been released by the authorities after being detained. And I've seen pictures of them. And what you see is them smiling. It's like they took their yearly family portrait and they have just been released from prison. Now, how is this so? Why do they feel such a sense of privilege and joy in enduring this? It's because their souls, because their lives are anchored toward their future reality, their future status, their future reward. One of the elders of the church, as he was brought in, he was separated from his family, from his very young children. And you know what he wrote to them? He wrote, Daddy is heading now to a secret place for a while. But don't worry. Your heavenly Father will prepare the best present for us. That's verses 11 and 12. He is so sure. He rests so much in his future status and reward that he can live this life enduring persecution with a sense of privilege and joy. That's forward back kingdom joy. Now as I close, let me just share how this passage has profoundly shaped me as I have 
sought to live out God's purpose for my life. You know, perhaps the most uh, frequent question that I'm asked, that I've been asked over the years, besides, how old are you? You're a pastor? How old are you? Besides that is, you know, I talk about, you know, my life and trajectory of my life that I went to Wharton Business School and I studied finance and now I'm a pastor today is, how in the world did that happen, right? How did you end up this way? How were you enabled to do that? I tell you, it was a long struggle for me as I sensed God calling me to serve him as a pastor full time because in doing so, I felt like I had to give up surrender this degree that I was earning and what this degree would provide for me in terms of a lucrative job, um, a life of wealth and status that I was longing for when I first entered into college. And what I struggled with so much was this insecurity, this fear that if I were to follow Jesus and obey what I believe was his call upon my life, I would lose out big time on this race of life, and I'll be left in the dust to be a nobody. Can any of you relate to that? You know, humanly speaking, it's the scariest thing in the world to look at what everyone else is after, chasing after in terms of job, salary, status, possessions, career, and feel like you are at the end of that race. And I was like, God, in following, you're calling me to end up being last here. That was terrifying for me. But what was it that empowered me, that enabled me to finally fully surrender, joyfully surrender to God's call? Well, one of the verses of Scripture was verse 5. Blessed are the meek seems random, right, of all the passages of Scripture that God would use to decisively enable me to obey his call. Blessed are the meek. Now, how so? It's because when I meditated on the second half of that verse, for such people will inherit the earth. You see what Jesus was telling me through that verse? You know what, Charles? If you obey me, even if you're last, dead last in this rat race of this world, you will not lose out. You will not lose out on anything because yours is the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. You will inherit the earth. What belongs to me belongs to you. You will indeed gain as you pursue me and not waste your time chasing after what everyone else does. And that future reality, that future reward, that future status, that I am one who will inherit the earth that landed on my soul like a ton of bricks. And that's what became the operative power in my life. You see, if this is what's true of me, I am free to be a loser. 
in this world's race. I can be dead last. You know what, world? Go chase after all that you're going to chase after. I have all that I need and want in the kingdom of God. And I can tell you, honestly, as I look back upon my life and I've pursued God's call, I have never felt in the least bit that I have sacrificed anything. I have only as I rest in my future reward instead. Now, don't remind me of the salary that I could have if I'm a consultant or a banker right now, right? But as I see what God has done in my life and even the privilege of being used, there is no regret, no sacrifice. So let me encourage you Lift up your eyes. If you belong to the kingdom of God, would your focus, would your spiritual eyes be fixed not on the present, but on your future glorious reality? Anchor yourself to that. And the more you do so, the more you will pursue, the more you will live out these beautiful characteristics of the kingdom of heaven these values that flip this world upside down. And as you live this out, your life will be beautifully, distinctively attractive. A beautiful, attractive righteousness for Jesus' sake as his kingdom citizens. Let's pray.